1: Welcome to episode 99 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. We might start seeing a summer slowdown in the courts, but for now we've got enough to keep us busy. Our first case today is the Illinois Appellate Court First District McGooey versus Brace about a court retaining jurisdiction for a decade. Our second case is Bones versus City of Bloomington, a fourth district case involving toward immunity. And our third case today is Holloway versus City of Milwaukee that was heard by the Seventh Circuit this past week. We haven't had a 1983 case in a while, so we thought we'd cover that case as well. Turning to our first case, Magui, Is that right, Pat, or is it Magui? Yeah. I, I guess. I wasn't quite clear. I don't know. That. In, in this case, can an Illinois trial court retain jurisdiction to enforce a settlement 10 years after dismissal of the case, or does the party seeking to enforce the settlement have to file a whole new suit for breach of contract? Does it impact the analysis that the settlement was reached with the trial judge and he ordered the parties to execute the settlement agreement? Does it matter that the settlement agreement provides that the enforcement of the settlement is vested with the judge or any of his successors on his calendar? Those are among the questions to be addressed when the Illinois Appellate Court 1st District decides McGooey versus Brace, which it heard for oral argument this past week. In 2012, Judge Hyman, then of the Circuit Court of Cook County, presided over a settlement conference and ordered the parties to execute a settlement agreement that resolved a dispute between neighbors regarding their property line and the construction of a parking pad. The parking pad was not constructed, and one of the parties erected a fence that precluded construction of the parking pad. The plaintiff filed a motion to enforce the settlement with Judge Riley, who now sits on Judge Hyman's former calendar, and she ruled in favor of the plaintiff. The defendants appealed, making a number of arguments, including that Judge Riley did not have jurisdiction over the dispute because the court had long since been divested of jurisdiction, and the parties cannot contract for a specific judge to decide their their dispute. Pat, tell us about oral argument in this case. Thanks, Dan, and and I want to emphasize here: we are
0: not talking about all of the right. property issues, easements, and all kinds of the things on the merits here. Because they're a mess, and I don't think either one of us is particularly well equipped to talk about those. At least I'm not. Uh, Property was not my strength in law school, uh, or as a lawyer for that matter. Uh, So we're talking about the procedural issue, and the procedural issue is, you know, typically under Illinois law, when a judge enters an order and says it's a final order that that resolves all the matters, uh, is a final order matter that resolves all, final order that resolves all matters in their entirety. It's done. And after 30 days, the judge loses jurisdiction. Now, sometimes the court will retain jurisdiction to enforce the settlement, but that doesn't appear to have happened here. Instead, what happened here is the, the, uh, the parties had a settlement conference. There apparently was after the settlement conference with the judge, with Judge Hyman, apparently after the settlement conference, there was a dispute over what they had agreed to they drafted up apparently competing versions of the settlement agreement. And he says that you're, that's what we agreed to and include a paragraph in there that this is what you're agreeing to. And there's a paragraph in there that says that myself or anybody else sitting in my calendar will, will work to enforce the settlement because he was somewhat prescient that there was going to be, uh, ongoing disputes because apparently good fences don't make good neighbors. Uh, they make litigious right. neighbors, as it turns out. Uh, and apparently there's at least one other appeal in this case already uh, over some other aspect of this. So the in 2006, so this happens in 2012. Now, in Illinois law, there is a special place for settlements reached in the presence of the court, but those are particularly enforceable. And I think that's what the judge, what the justices certainly were getting at, at the oral argument was saying, hold it. Yeah, we understand that the order says that the case is dismissed and that the case is resolved in its entirety. But Judge Hyman also said, you are going to sign the settlement agreement because this reflects our agreement. And as part of that agreement, you're going to come back to me or my successors. Now understand at least two other judges have sat in that calendar, at least Judge Larson and now Judge Riley, and I may be leaving somebody out.
1: I think so. I think
0: I am leaving somebody out. I can't remember who it was before Judge Larson that sat in that bed on that calendar in 2405 is the room uh, since Judge Hyman became Justice Hyman. Uh, but there you are. And so... Uh, the typical situation is, is, that I mentioned thirty days. Within thirty days, you can move to vacate a judgment under Rule 1301, uh, and then between thirty days and two years, you can file a petition under 1401. Much harder standard. You have to show all kinds of things. It's it's much harder to vacate. And the plaintiff or the defendant's argument is, hold it. You, you, this court lost jurisdiction. You can't just contract to say we're going to have a particular judge hear this case. Uh, that's not how this works. You need to sue us you know, apparently they they thought they were going to do better with a different judge. I don't know. I mean, it's not like they it's not like there wasn't going to be some judge that was going to decide the meaning of the settlement conference or the middle of the settlement agreement. It's a question of what what the of who they want to or how they want to get there. And I, I didn't quite understand why they invested so much. And we didn't like they objected right. this entire process. There was an I posted about this on LinkedIn and, and somebody posted or referenced revestment. Now, revestment, I think we've discussed maybe yeah. once before on the show, is a rather unique Illinois doctrine that can get around all of these time limitations if the parties agree. Basically, if they bring it back to the court and they say, Hey, we don't object. But that's how it happened here. The the defendant objected throughout and said, You don't have jurisdiction, you don't have jurisdiction, you don't have jurisdiction. So revestment really isn't what happened here. Uh, it certainly is possible the court could acquiesce and, and that's you know, how that can happen, revestment. It doesn't happen very often, but it can happen. Um, but I, I don't think it happened here. And Judge Walker brought, or Justice Walker rather, brought up you know, domestic relations cases. Now domestic relations cases are a, are, are a different kettle of fish because you can always go in and modify a support order. They have to be able to be modifiable You know, children grow, parents' situations change, things like that. You know, I can speak from experience that, you know, you go in and you change that order, uh, hopefully by agreement, but it gets changed in order to facilitate uh, whatever arrangements now, you know, because when you reach those agreements, uh, things change. uh, And you, there's no way for you to possibly predict how things are going to change a decade or more on. And so you have to be able to have some flexibility. And so those domestic relations cases, they're under their own thing under their own statute. I really didn't understand that particular analogy. Um, But this, I I do get the defendant's point, but it does seem that's what the parties agreed to. And I don't see anything that prevents them from agreeing to that. Uh, That we're going to go back to calendar, I think it's calendar seven and and the chancery division, and that's who's going to decide this case. The interesting thing would happen is what if calendar seven went away? <laughs> so I don't know how it would happen then. I mean, it's unlikely that that would occur, but, you know, stranger things have happened. Uh, Dan, any any more thoughts on, on this particular situation? Rather unique. unique.
1: And like you said, you know, the parties agreed to this in a settlement agreement. So, you know, I think at one point they said maybe bad lawyering or something. But, you know, that that's you made choices back in 2012 to resolve this thing. And so, yeah, I, I'm not sure. Like you said, I don't see why you spend so much money. I mean, they, I guess the alternative would be that they would file a new lawsuit, like you said, for breach of contract, and then they would be reviewing the settlement agreement that's at issue anyway and and, and the enforcement of the settlement agreement and whether right. the parties have abided by it or not. So I, I just really don't understand what's here.
0: It seems that this is, yeah, it seems this is part of a broader yeah. dispute. It seems there's at least one other piece of litigation that's going on and that these parties may actually agree vis-a-vis some other parties it's it's a very strange situation and and they did get into the merits of whether there was an easement and whether it burdened both both properties and whether which one was the was the dominant which one was the servient uh, parcel and all this kind of thing and and their argument ultimately on the merits was there isn't a uh there isn't an easement at all because they're essentially co-equal shares but you know, the agreement says, build a parking pad. And now you prevent it from building a parking pad. This is one reason why judges don't like uh, what are called mandatory injunctions. That is where they're having to monitor to make sure the parties do something. They're, it's much easier for them to prevent people from doing things. You don't do X, don't do Y, as opposed to you must do right. X, you must do Y. They really don't like the latter, the latter kind of injunction, which is what this was, is you will build this thing. Because getting the parties to actually do it is sometimes And there's difficult.
1: fights like this. Anytime uh, there's a mandatory injunction, like you said, there's always this kind of dispute between the right. parties about whether it's been implemented according to what was mandated, et cetera. So very, very challenging. It's much easier to get parties to simply write a check
0: as opposed to have them build a thing. Because building a thing involves third parties usually, and it's it, it, it may involve other governmental entities in terms of permits and things. It's a big mess. So. So with that, we'll take our first break and come back with Bones versus City of Bloomington. We're back for segment two of episode 99 of the Podium and Panel podcast, and we're back for our second case, Bones versus City of Bloomington. What do do you do? when during briefing on appeal, the Illinois Supreme Court issues an opinion that reverses the case upon which summary judgment was granted in your favor. That's essentially the question to be addressed when the Illinois Appellate Court 4th District decides this case. In this case, if you're the defendant, you argue entirely new theories of defense under the Tort Immunity Act that had not been argued below and had not been specifically pled. Not sure that's gonna work out very well. The plaintiff was injured when he was struck by a vehicle whose minor driver was fleeing the police after the vehicle was identified as being stolen. The trial court entered summary judgment in favor of the defendants, finding that the driver was an escape prisoner and that immunity applied. For those that listen to the podcast regularly, you'll remember uh, that the Robinson versus Village of Sock Village Village case, uh, because we can't have village enough That's in the right. name of that town, was issued in which the state high court found that actual physical control was required to constitute, quote, in custody, which the driver in this case was not. As a result, uh, as a result in their appellee brief, the defendants argued entirely new theories under the Tort Immunity Act, despite discovery having been stayed before the trial card and those theories not having been specifically pled. Illinois law requires affirmative defenses like immunity to be pled and proved, and the affirmative defense here simply set- stated that the defendants were relying upon the Tort Immunity Act, as in the whole thing as opposed to any particular provisions, including the one that they prevailed on. Dan, why would you tell us sure. about and
1: your were, You know, one of the things I thought about, I think we may have mentioned him on an early episode of the and Panel podcast, was early in my career, we were in front of uh, Judge David Lichtenstein, and we had submitted some affirmative defenses because there's a catch-all that says in any other affirmative defense must be affirmatively pled. And uh, he we were at the summary judgment stage by the time we got to him and he wasn't having any of it. He said that the pleadings themselves were deficient. He said that our affirmative defenses, he said, what basis? And then, you know, I'm a young lawyer sitting there saying, well, there's a catch-all, your honor. He said, well, the catch-all is not really a catch-all. It's, you know, and so. Yeah. Because you got to plead facts. And so as you mentioned, you not only have to identify the theory, you have
0: to plead facts just like right. all other pleadings. And so
1: as you mentioned, uh, one of the, uh things that was asked uh, uh, on, on several occasions by this panel of the uh, 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 city of Bloomington was uh, they they had followed as you said just a generic affirmative defense that talked about the tort immunity act and in the, the exact language was you know uh, uh, immunity under the tort immunity act it was very broadly stated it didn't say that this particular section you um, and uh, like you said, there, there was some pushback uh, from the panel in terms of what this was going to look like. Um, the uh, uh, city, as they had to do, and you know we've talked about this as well. The Seventh Circuit and other uh, any appellate courts uh, that you know you, you, you have to give up when when a, a highest court uh, jurisdiction decides. <laughs> On, on an issue, and as you mentioned, the village of uh, Sauk Village, uh, Robinson case was decided. And so the city of Bloomington here, uh, in their briefs, they conceded that uh, they, they can no longer prevail on this, uh, on this theory. And so they started to bring in other uh, theories. Um, the, uh, uh, um and and so you have a situation here where the trial court you know based on a law that existed at the time they they granted the defendant's motion for summary judgment so um the 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 the, the question that that's really at issue here is whether or not uh the police officer uh in this case and it's a little bit unclear the whole chase sequence but it was uh or was or, it a or chase? was it a chase um, it wasn't uh, directly behind the, the car that escaped uh there was a hill so they lost uh, sight of vision there's all kinds of things going on here but the uh uh question was whether or not the police acted willfully and wantonly here so that toward immunity would not apply and um uh, again uh the the appellant i think did a good job of, of uh uh you know, raising this thing about the new issues on appeal, different sections of the Tort Immunity Act, um, and and the general rule uh, in in these appellate decisions is is that uh, new arguments on appeal are generally not considered by the court. Um, and, and the advocate for the appellant noted that this court that he was in front of uh, recognizes that uh, basic principle. Um, the uh, the The main argument that the uh, plaintiff in this case had again, uh, uh, some, some someone sadly was injured, just like in the Robinson case. You have a, the fleeing vehicle that that hit hit somebody, uh, doing, yeah, that was, that a, was chase a chase for sure. Uh, there was no escaping, <laughs> but there was a chase. Um, right. The, the the argument of the appellant is the reason for this rule and this principle that that you can't raise new things on appeal. Is that, as you say, this case was stayed and that so there's there were two eyewitnesses in this case there's a lot of other things where if these other defenses had specifically been raised. Then the plaintiff could have addressed those and tried to attack those uh, through evidence and and probably would have been experts experts yeah, experts the, the witnesses themselves. Yeah. Um, the. Um, uh the, the, there was a lot of questions, and again, the, the, that question of wilful and wanton—if if, that—if you get to that matter, uh, that should have been a jury question, according to the appellant, and I think that's probably right. Um, the, the one thing that also um, uh, was weighing in the appellant's argument, some in this in this matter, uh, was that uh, there there was a policy of the city of Bloomington. Again, the 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 base question, and again, probably uh, uh, needs. A trier of fact and more evidence and, and more discovery is again whether or not uh, this was in fact a pursuit and chase, and and the question becomes, um, uh, you know, what uh, what w- w- was this in fact a chase that took place, um, um, and, and, and but but what what the uh, city of Bloomington has is a police policy against these types of uh, if it is a chase. <laughs> There's a, there's a police policy that rules against these things. As we've talked about, these chases often lead to, um, when there are chases, they lead to this bad kind of.
0: Well, where there's, prop, right, where there's property involved. All right, this was was right, a stolen
1: right. car. A stolen car from from some minor. Um, and so uh, when the appellate stood up, the, the, the justices were pretty rapid fire. They asked about, you know, you, these issues weren't raised in the trial court. Not raised raising your summary judgment motion, uh, they, they asked, "Do you agree that the principle uh, toward immunity Act affirmative defense must be pled?" Um, the uh, justices then asked about this kind of uh, the genericness of the of the affirmative defense. Um, like you said, it was it, it was very bare bones. So, no no pun intended. Um, the the. The, the justices when they did ask the appellate they they seem to uh suggest that there were issues of fact of material fact and and so why not uh put this back to the trial court uh for further discovery especially in light of this kind of again generic affirmative defense where um uh, other sections are now being pled in terms of affirmative uh, uh, the affirmative defense of tort immunity and so um it's an interesting case it, it's uh you know as we've talked about on the show, Pat, you know, the, uh, sometimes this happens The seventh circuit is very quick. Uh, they they might issue a a decision one day and the next day you're arguing in front of them and they're asking you about their decision that they issued here. There was a little more timing, but, uh, just an interesting, uh, situation when you're in a situation where, um, you won something at the trial court based on law that now has been changed by the Supreme court of Illinois. So, um, Anything else to add on this case? I, I,
0: I, think that, I, I think that what should have happened here is the trial court relied right. on a Townsend case that was specifically overruled by Robinson. And the Robinson case itself made clear that the facts here were not going to ever allow them to be able to show no. that this person was in custody. What should have happened here, and maybe the client right. didn't let them do it, but I have to think the lawyers said, we need to confess error and go back because this is over. We, we, you know, we've we got to go back and develop this record. Why are we going to waste a bunch of time running to the appellate court? This is a situation where error should have been confessed. Um, I'm not suggesting anybody did anything wrong, but it would have been a whole lot more efficient for everybody for them to have simply confessed error and gone back once the Robinson decision came back, came down and right. said, all right, we're I done. Agree. Uh, and, I, I, I don't, I, the question I would have asked if I were the ballot court justice would have been, why did you confess that? Right. Why are we here? I mean, the appellate court is a court of review, not first view. And they're being asked to take, they're being asked to take a first view, not only of facts, but of argument. It's, it needs to go back to the trial court. And maybe it'll be that the defendants win, and maybe it'll be that the case gets tried, and right. who knows what will happen then. But this isn't a case that belonged in the appellate court once the, on that posture once the Robinson decision came down and the Townsend decision was overruled. Um, so yep. there we are. Uh, with that, we'll take our next break and come back with Holloway versus City of Milwaukee. Hey, Podiebin podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you.
1: Welcome back to segment three of episode 99 of the podium and panel podcast. And we're facing our third case. Holloway was there probable cause for arrest of a man for serial rape based upon a lineup in which two of the victims did not see their attackers and allegedly tainted by showing them a picture of the suspect and allegedly baseless arrest of the suspect for prowling in another community and the failure for months of the police to investigate the suspect's alibis. Those are among the questions that the Seventh Circuit will consider when it decides Holloway versus City of Milwaukee. The plaintiff in this case, Dwayne Holloway was convicted of rape and imprisoned for 23 years before being released as a result of the efforts of the Innocence Project with a finding of innocence as a matter of law following application of DNA evidence. Holloway then sued the City of Milwaukee and officers individually on several theories, including section 1983, malicious prosecution and conspiracy. The district court granted summary judgment to the defendants, finding probable cause for the arrest. At oral argument, Judge Sykes raised the issue of qualified immunity as to the lineup, and Judge Easterbrook raised, quote, out of left field, in quote, his words, not ours, the issue of whether the right to not have a defective lineup is a trial right only, as will be addressed in the Miranda context by the Supreme Court of the United States and its forthcoming decision in Vega versus Tico. Can tell us about oral argument in this interesting 1983
0: case. Thanks, Dan, and it really is a very interesting case. There's a lot of layers to it. Uh, I posted the Supreme, or strike that, the district court's uh, ruling on summary judgment in favor of the defendants. So in 1992, uh, there was a, a series of rapes uh, in Milwaukee, and this guy Holloway gets picked up for them. It doesn't seem anybody actually saw his face and there were potential other suspects. They had a, they had reports from Shorewood. And I think that's Shorewood, Wisconsin, not Shorewood, Illinois, but it could be wrong. Shorewood, uh, Wisconsin, and Whitefish Bay, which counsel for the defendant, pointed plaintiff rather called White Folks <laughs> Bay uh, as a slur yeah. on the police department there. Uh, for you know he would have been alleged to have been prowling in those areas um, and so they they apparent they judge Scudder I think described the probable cause as paper thin or wafer thin um, but the so if you get the the district court judge found that there was probable cause for the arrest, and that's the end of the story uh that they had a reason to believe that he committed these crimes. Um, and then Judge Sy- Judge Sykes, as Dan said, asked about, well, hold it, this, this lineup, I mean, if you've had five judges look at this thing, they've all said the lineup is okay. By five judges, we mean the trial court judge, state trial court judge, the three judge- judges or justices on the Wisconsin uh, appellate court and a district court judge, I've all looked at this lineup and said, it's okay. If five judges can't figure it out, how are cops supposed to figure it out all these years ago that this lineup was screwed up? And apparently the lineup involved, they, they were able to, the women were able to describe the build and generally the skin color of the, of their attacker, but they couldn't describe, they had differences in height and, and, and whatnot. Um, you know, Holloway I think is like five ten. The The attacker is described as five seven to five eight. I have no idea how someone who's being attacked can make a different distinction in two or three yeah. inches. I think that's a, that, that's a bit, a bridge too far for the plaintiff, frankly, to, to argue that, I, you know, it's unless the guy's like a seven footer, I mean, I, I really, you know, or, 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 or a little person, I, I have a hard time, you know, making that big a difference in, 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 in height. Uh, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I think you get my point three inches. Really? Uh, when you've been attacked in this fashion, I no, I I don't know about that, but there are other things about the build and whatnot, uh, and the, the women hadn't seen his face. They said, um, but the really interesting question, and and just, Judge Easterbrook conceded that this question is out of left field. I know you're not ready for it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Is do you even have the right to have a good lineup in the course of an investigation, or is it you don't have you only have the right not to have it introduced at trial? If it's no good, and he analogized to Miranda, so defendant or suspect comes in, he's he's uh, it's a, it's determined that it's a custodial interrogation. He's not Mirandized. He gives a confession, but the confession's never admitted into trial at, at evidence at evidence of trial. Is there a problem? That's what they're going to decide the Tico case. I, I don't know. Um, is it only a trial right, or is it a right earlier in the process? <coughs> I, I I'm not sure. I, I, I don't know enough about the topic other than to say I understand the issue, but I couldn't, get, I, we'll see what happens there. I'm not sure that how much this plays into this, because this is really a question of did they have probable cause to make the arrest? Because the claims are in the nature of uh, due process, malicious prosecution, conspiracy of this kind this kinds of things. What is also interesting, and we didn't get, it may be that this did come out at trial, is there wasn't a discussion of what, whether those alibis panned out, I mean, apparently he comes in, they arrest him, and he says, "I've got alibis. I was at this place. I was at this place. I was at this place." Go talk to these witnesses, and apparently the police waited five, six, seven months to go, you know, talk to these these uh, alleged alibi witnesses. Okay, we really couldn't tell from the oral argument whether that was a fruitful exercise. If those alibi witnesses panned out, and they they had already arrested him at that point, okay. But why didn't that hold up at trial? Because obviously the jurors discounted those alibi right. witnesses to the extent they were they were um, they were presented at trial. So that doesn't seem to to uh, hold hold much weight. But the the idea that someone gets held in prison for 23 years for a crime they didn't commit and that they have found to be actually innocent um, following a vacation of their conviction, it seems that there should be some remedy. That uh, there, there certainly was a wrong. It seems there should be some kind of remedy there, uh, and and I'm, I I, I just think there's got to be a remedy here. I don't know if the Seventh is going to give it to him or not, but it seems like there should be a remedy. Dan, anything else to add on uh, on this uh, no, case? I
1: don't. And and again, I, I agree with you. But given the decision in the habeas corpus case a week or two ago by the Supreme Court, and even if you're innocent and you know you, you can show that. Too bad because of efficiencies of, of the system. Yeah, I don't know what the Southern Circuit will do here, or what the Supreme Court will do in the case that they're going to decide. I, who knows?
0: Yeah, that the the habeas the habeas case is a bit different than this, but I take your yeah, point. Yeah, it's just a general point. Yeah. No, I, I take your point. Right. That that we can't go back and second guess and whatnot. And here they did second guess. I mean, the guy was actually innocent, so they did you know, right. didn't have to right. go to a habeas proceeding. Uh, the state court, the state court, quote, corrected its error yeah. uh, <laughs> to the extent they could. They let him out of prison, found him actually innocent, and now he gets to go sue in federal court to try to get some remedy, some actual recompense for the 23 years he spent locked up for no reason, um, based upon what seems to be a really shoddy yep. investigation, uh, and apparently never actually, in ca- a real tragedy, they never actually caught the real rapist. Um, that's yep. That's the real problem. There are There is harm here beyond this fellow who lost a quarter century of his life, yep. which is bad enough. Um, so with that, uh, we will talk about uh, business interruption in COVID cases. Dan, uh, do, do you want to tell us about yeah, a couple uh, of these? We,
1: we mentioned uh, last week, I think in the COVID uh, piece, ABC Diamonds Incorporated versus Hartford Casualty Insurance Company. Uh, it was a three-page opinion by the Seventh Circuit, uh, and they found for... Unpublished, they unpublished. publishers uh, the, uh, and the judges, as we had discussed uh, covered that the cover net briefly seemed skeptical that there was a difference based on the use of of instead of two, especially based on several decisions that had already addressed this language. Um, and they they relied upon another decision from the Seventh Circuit, as all these circuits are doing now, where they just say this has been addressed in this case and there's no difference here, and they said, even if there was. Uh, even if there was the, uh, you could get into, uh, the, the insurance agreement language in this case, there was a virus exclusion. So, uh, no dice. And then, uh, your firm's client, uh, Henry's grill versus allied insurance company, a win in the 11th circuit for the insurance company. Uh, we, I think briefly mentioned it last week that the oral argument had taken place Pat, And so congratulations to you and your firm. Yeah, it's the
0: first real decision. First real decision uh, addressing yep. this under Georgia law, and so now the Eleventh Circuit has decided the issue in favor of insurers on the three states that it covers: Alabama, Georgia, and Florida, all in favor of insurers. And so this was the one uh, um, I that uh, um, was for Georgia. Um, my partner Phil Saverin, argued this in favor of the uh, in favor of the carrier and was successful. I, I was. My little part was I was one of the one of the panel for our, nice. our for our moot court, so uh, yeah. that was that was fun. I got I I got to give them the third degree along with a couple of my partners. So
1: cool.
0: <laughs> the uh, they did not address the 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 defendants in that or the plaintiffs rather in that case the appellants on a, uh, they tried their big thing was certify this to the Georgia Supreme Court and the court yeah. didn't even address the issue um, in their opinion. So there we are, which brings us to our prediction. Sure to go wrong uh, for this week. Uh, we are now our Dan is 144 and a half, 24 and a half and seven. I am 143 and a half, 24, 24 or 25 and a half and seven. We were two and one this week. Overall, uh, we got right uh, Palmer versus Elby. Which dealt with the, the alleged negligent hiring of an eighty year old driver, and in the opinion, we get another reference right. to the Foxcraft doctrine um, that we've discussed several times on the show. If your if your theory gets dismissed with prejudice, and you want to pursue it later, replete it only for the purposes of appeal, so you can raise it later. Yep. that's how it works yep. in Illinois. Do it, uh, and then we have. Uh, we also got right Pierce versus Chira Curry, uh, which dealt with a, a, a forum non convenience situation, where a person uh, was treated in McDonough County and had some treatment thereafter. It was for a stroke up in up in up in Illinois or up in uh, Cook County, and they sued in Cook County. And the court or the plaintiff or the defendants argued that it wasn't convenient or appropriate to to litigate it in Cook; it should have been in McDonough. And the court affirmed the judgment of the uh, of the trial court denying that motion. The one we got wrong, Dan. Why don't you tell us from the Indiana Supreme Court, sure, Holcomb this was versus the case Brett.
1: about uh, the General Assembly of Indiana being able to set an emergency session, and what uh, the uh, Indiana Supreme Court looked at was that the constitutional text requires the length and frequency of the legislative session to be, quote, fixed by law, end quote. Um, and then they said that it has to be specifically set by a bill enacted by the full general assembly when it's in, when it's in session. Uh, this this was a COVID-19. Uh, uh, the, the legislature came in session to try to address actions by the governor. And uh, we got this one wrong. We, we thought that the Uh, legislature would be able to do this emergency session uh, given separations of power but the supreme court of indiana said uh, the governor had satisfied his high burden to establish that the law is unconstitutional um, and that the uh, argument that this and the law they
0: found unconstitutional let's be clear is the law that allowed them to call themselves into session nothing that they did during the session now whether those laws are unconstitutional because how they got into session right. is unconstitutional is a different question uh, that I'm not sure they, they addressed not. but the, the 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 narrow issue the narrow issue is simply did they have the authority and to do the they thing did not that they did so it's it's one of those it's one of those rare situations where during this where most of the overreach has been by governors and by executives both at the state and federal level and here you had what the judiciary found was overreached by the general assembly, not by the governor. So, somewhat of a, somewhat of a, the COVID world's turned everything on, on its head, and this is another situation where that that kind of happened. And, and you, Anything else on that case? To,
1: you know, uh, as your point of whether what they did in the session is also unconstitutional, I guess it really kind of is moot anyway, because you know we're. I mean, I guess it's presidential for another pandemic, but uh, it just seems like uh, you know. Yeah. Um, but 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 it, it does raise an interesting question, because if it's an if it was illegal to go into session, to the session to create the session, then is anything that's done in that illegal session illegal? I, I mean, I don't Who knows if there'll be further litigation? It's just an interesting kind of fact. Better. We'll we'll, so, we'll certainly the, find that out exam question. Uh,
0: <laughs> exactly. Which brings us to our predictions of the week for this week. Uh, Dan McGowey versus Brace. I think so. This is going to yeah, get affirmed, kind of affirmed, right? Yeah, I think this is affirmed. Bones versus City of Bloomington. I That's so getting reversed. reversed. I there's any other way it's going to get? And Holloway versus City of Milwaukee.
1: I have no earthly idea. Uh, I don't I think. Are we punting? Yeah, it's... Uh...
0: I mean, I sure hope, I, I frankly hope that the, the plaintiff wins. But I have no I confidence that he either. will. But uh, yeah, I don't know. All right, so that brings us to the rule of the week. I'm just going to play as as we often do. Uh, judge the the poor soul that had to argue in front of George Easterbrook <laughs> this this week. Boy, okay. you better be prepared. Uh, so this comes to us from a case called the Johnson versus Daikon Logistics. So uh, let me get this queued up. And here we go. Greater interest in this case in Virginia,
1: since all of the work was performed here in Illinois, the plaintiffs reported to locations in Illinois. The plaintiffs all resided in Illinois. They all signed their contracts in Illinois. That being, the case, well, Mr. Lichten, what you just stated raises the principal question, in my mind, whether the home state exception to the Class Action Fairness Act doesn't require this case to be in Illinois court. If all the work is done in Illinois, it has to be covered by the Illinois statute. And all the plaintiffs are in. Illinois.
0: It sounds like more than two-thirds of the plaintiffs are in Illinois for the purpose of 1332 D-4. Why doesn't this case belong in state court? I have not addressed that, Your Honor. It did not come up. I know, but jurisdiction is the first issue in every case. I I do not have an answer to that, Your Honor, because I. So so we have said this several times. (laughs) The Seventh Circuit are jurisdictional hawks, and there you heard it. Uh, he goes on, J- Judge Easterbrook goes on to say, we ask you to brief on the issue of jurisdiction. I- it's one of the elements of your brief you have to tell us about. It's in the docketing statement. It's in the response to the docketing statement if it gets filed. Uh, it's, in, it's in the uh, your briefs. It's in both the appellant and the appellee's brief. They're, they're serious. And so here he is. He's bringing up the, this, this. So the rule of the week is jurisdiction, just a reminder, jurisdiction right. is the first issue on appeal that is uh, it's always a question uh, it's certainly the first question in the Seventh Circuit that's the, them's the rules um, and they mean it uh, by the way take a sip there's a there's an, there's a uh, an ambulance outside there uh, the its it, so he's bringing up the class action fairness Act we have. I think we've discussed but maybe not about this home state exception to the class action fairness Act that is, that you can meet all the standards, but if there's, if it really belongs in Illinois state court, this guy goes to this litany of reasons why it belongs in Illinois state court. It's like, why are we even in federal court? This sounds like this belongs in state in, in, in state court, uh, not even federal court, whether we're talking about a Virginia state court or Virginia federal court or an Illinois federal court. We're talking about, this, this case belongs back, uh, back in state court. And he's talking about 1332, which is a jurisdictional statute. Uh, and it's the sections he's cited of the Class Action Fairness Act, counsel was entirely unprepared for this. It's, they're going right. to supplementally brief the issue. There, there's Because it didn't seem either side had addressed it. And I, I don't know why the judges didn't ask for supplemental briefing prior to the oral argument, other than just to yeah. screw with the lawyers, which they did.
1: Uh... <laughs> this guy, he, he also used CAPA, so- which again... Uh... Rule number rule yeah. number two that we've talked about repeatedly, Judge Easterbrook did not use acronyms. <laughs> you are going to get chastised for you know for using them.
0: Yeah, there but there wasn't there was someone this week during the argument on the nursing home care case that when, there was a Law 360 article on that used the Prep Act. He was and he was okay with that. He was okay with Prep Act. Uh, he he, he it's, I think it's the key is you use the word act. So he knew that you were talking with some statute. <laughs> so if you say the CAF Act, he may be okay. <laughs> I don't know. I ju- just don't use acronyms. I-, I can't believe he let him get away with Prep Act. Uh, in fact, he even used the term Prep Act. I think during the argument. So uh, it, it was as long as you word the word Act. I think you're okay. <laughs> Anything else no. on that issue, Dan? All right, so with that, we will take our leave. Thank you, everybody, for joining us this week on the Podium and Panel Podcast. We'll see you next week.
1: I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn, and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.